Hey, it's good to be back indoors. Last week we took a little uh, a little side trip to Almaden Lake Park, for those of you who may have missed. And um, I think almost everyone who was there agreed that we need to do that more often. Uh, it was just, it was really good to be outside. And this is one of the thoughts that dawned on me. As we were sitting there, uh, we were sitting in this amphitheater that they have, have created over there. And, um, and here's Ben and the team leading, leading us in some worship. And um, Wendy and Patty went around and were snapping shots. And as I was looking through some pictures, you know, here's a fisherman and his son that were totally within earshot of everything that went on in our church. And I guarantee you that it, had we been here in this building, they would not have heard anything of what went on. While I was teaching... Uh, Greg Barrow took his post handing out bulletins. He just, he had to hand something out because that's what Greg does. So, um, he found these papers. No, I'm just kidding. He had some papers about Neighborhood Bible Church and, and while I was up teaching, I was watching joggers go by and, and different people and a few people stopped and there's, and there's Greg Barrow just engaging with people and, um, I actually, actually saw Patty signing with a woman, uh, just who was there and had seen her doing, I need to catch up on that story. I don't know what happened. But everyone who was there and engaged even for a, a, a minute span, a two-minute span, um, they would not have been here in this building on that Sunday, right? They were at Elmwood Lake Park, and that's where we were. And there, there's just something about that that's so right as a church to, to, um, to do that. So get comfortable for the next little bit of time, but don't get too comfortable in this building, in your pew, in this air-conditioned place. Uh, but rather, let's just keep that in, in, in mind. One of the things we celebrated last weekend was our rights as Americans and living in this country. We talked about that a little bit, um, but as I as I got to thinking about our passage this week and kind of thought about things, you know, not all rights are created equal. And just like as a Christian, there's certain things we love to talk about, and we're like, oh yeah, we have you know we have rights as a disciple, or we have benefits as a disciple. But there are there are things that come with being an American, certain rights that maybe you aren't quite as excited about. Let me read some. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney present during questioning. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. Do you understand these rights? Now, we won't make a public spectacle of this this morning, but some of you have had a very, very bad day and had these words read to you. And maybe you have felt, I and mean, we've all played this as kids. Me and my brothers constantly arrested each other. And we patted each other down. And we read some version of these rights to one another. Now, most uh, arrests and betrayals that are out there are not really that worth remembering. They're not that worth talking about, thinking about, dissecting, singing about. But this morning, as we, as we kind of take a, a, a turn in our, in our text in John chapter 18... Um, I would say this, that, that no other arrest has been so recounted, so talked about, so thought about and meditated upon, and no arrest has had such an impact on the entire world than the arrest that we're about to read in the scriptures. And here's one of the dangers that I have and many of you in this room have, and that is this, it's familiar to us. We've read some of these words before, and so sometimes the impact of that story can sometimes wane for us. This morning's title is called Ready, Willing, and Able. 
And what I want to just propose to you is this, that as Jesus begins kind of this, this gauntlet that is the last few hours of his life here on earth, and it's going to lead to his death, that some things go on that are in the text that will not be caught at kind of a casual read. And I would just really implore you, before you come to worship on a Sunday morning, you know the text for next week. It's in your bulletin every single week. Read through the passage. As Rob and I talked about this week's passage, you're getting away from all the red letters of Jesus talking and saying these tremendously deep theological truths, and you're getting into more of the the narrative of what's going on. And at first read, you you just don't get much. And then at second read and third read, you begin to let it soak in you, and you begin to to see things that are there uh, that we won't have time to, to jump into all of them today. But really, really powerful things God has impressed upon me just as I've been looking at this. I've been studying this passage uh, since before Hume Lake uh, t- uh, two weeks ago and just excited to see kind of where this is going. This garden here, Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means um, oil press. And I just thought about this idea of an, of an oil press. And here, here the light of the world is about to be, to be not only pressed, but, but the scriptural term is that he was crushed. And you think about, you know, olive oil. We're in, an, we're in an olive grove, right? You think about olive oil being, being pressed out of the olive. And, and Jesus becomes for us this, this pearl of great price. This gospel that we sing about and cling to and have all of our hope on is, is possible because of this, this crushing that is about to take place. Let me give you kind of the big idea. Uh, if you have your, your notes, I'd invite you to, to open them up uh, from your bulletin and follow along. Um, sometimes it helps, even if you don't feel like you need to write things down, it may help you stay engaged just to keep writing for those of you who are physical, kinetic-type learners. John chapter 18 is where we're at this morning, and the big idea that I want to get across is this, that obedience and intimacy prepare us for when our hour comes. John's been using this literary technique of you know, of, of foreshadowing, basically, saying the hour's not yet come, the hour's not yet come. And Jesus didn't do this, or he slipped away because his hour had not yet come. And so, again, I think of things in soundtrack mode, and I always think if there was a soundtrack to John, we would get that this is becoming the, the climax of the story here. And in John chapter 18, the action begins to kind of pick up in, in the, the narrative. What I want to do is this. I want to read our text this morning in its entirety, and then we'll go back and kind of unpack it a little bit. John chapter 18, verse 1, follow along. It says, When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the, the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, 
cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put, away your, put, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Let me say a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to come and illuminate and to put on display what it is uh, that you are wanting to teach us, to show us, to impress upon us this morning. God, even just in a few short moments before the service began, I've just talked to a lot of people who are in a lot of different places walking into the building this morning. Some are tired and worn out. Some are excited and jubilant. And um, God, we just pray in a unique and powerful and supernatural way that you would meet us here at our point of need. God, I pray that our own ears and eyes and hearts would be ready, willing, and able to receive what it is you have for us this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Studying the life of Jesus for us as believers, as disciples, is not merely academic. This is a story, this is a, um, uh, an a, account that has been picked apart and dissected and studied by some of the greatest minds throughout the ages, really. And people have, have just ripped it apart and, and gone into all the deep nuances of it. The reason we're studying through the book of John, by the way, and the reason we're taking our time going through it is that you and I, if you, if you are a follower of Christ, you are called to be just like Jesus. That's what the call of discipleship is. Remember what Jesus said? Follow me. He said, follow me. And so you and I are called to be just like Jesus. So as we see Jesus come across uh, prayer, we want to see how he does that. That's what we've been looking at for the last three or four weeks. As Jesus comes across people, we want to see how he treats people and handles situations. When Jesus is tested and falsely accused and arrested and beaten, we want to see the heart of God, the mind of God, the will of God, not just academic from afar, just to say this happened, but why did it happen? What does that mean for me as his follower, as her follower, as as his follower, as as a Christian? Today, I just want to kind of throw out to you three ways to be just like Jesus. And I want to show you a, an image here. This is a picture of my daughter when she was three years old. She's now eight. And this was the day after Christmas. We're celebrating at my family's house. And here's, here's Briley reading to her baby. And part of why I think this, this picture just so grabs my heart is the reason that my three-year-old, who cannot read, was reading to her baby doll is because for three years, that's what she experienced. She experienced her mommy reading to her with her sitting on her lap. So as she played with her baby, she was just mimicking what she had seen for three years. Now, as a parent, that both excites you and scares you to death, doesn't it? Because when you fly off in a rage, when you become lazy, when you do the wrong thing, you realize there are watching eyes that are following in your footsteps. And when you get it right, and when you live a life of faith and trust, and when you display self-control, and when you have peace through trials, you praise God that that's one of the strongest ties and best ways and God-ordained ways for passing on a legacy of, of godliness. But this picture illustrates how we are to be with Jesus. Is she even reading? No. So you could say she's doing it wrong, right? She's not doing it as right as her mom did it for her. But as disciples, what we do as we see what Jesus does, and we go and do likewise. 1 John 2.6 says this, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The call for a disciple could not be more clear that what's required of you and I as a disciple is to mimic Jesus. It's to walk as he did. 
And so that's why as we, as we go into the story, don't just see it as a story. Don't see this as a news article. Don't just see it as a list of facts that happened. Pray and ask for discernment. Say, God, what is it you want me to, to draw out of this, to mimic you in this kind of situation? And I'm not talking just about arrest, because prayerfully, most of you won't get arrested this week. Right? But there's a good chance you'll come across trials. There's a good chance you'll be falsely accused. There's a good chance you'll, you'll come across some of the same kinds of things. Here's how you're just like Jesus. I'll just give them to you all three up front. When you're ready to meet the enemy head on. When you're ready to meet the, the enemy head on, you're just like Jesus in that. You're also just like Jesus when you're, when you're willing to obey even in the face of peril. You're also just like Jesus when you're able to be God's instrument of grace. So that's kind of where we're heading. We'll take these one at a time now. You're just like Jesus when you're ready to meet the enemy head on. Look at verse 4 with me. Verse 4, it says, Jesus, catch this part right here, knowing all that was going to happen. He already knew where this was all headed. One version says, so he stepped forward. My translation says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus was ready for this moment. Jesus stepped out to them, and the intended victim basically took charge of the situation. Right? He, was, he had mastery of what was going on right here. In his hour of testing, he didn't run, he didn't hide, he didn't shrink back, he didn't look for an alternative. He went out and he faced it head on. This is a quote from a guy named Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. You might have heard of him. He says this, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in the moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. This is a man who didn't speak that from a coffee shop in Paris somewhere on vacation. This is a guy who wrote that from life experience. And you want to talk about arrests that were worth remembering this is a guy that got arrested on multiple occasions, and he got arrested not for doing the wrong thing, but in a struggle for civil rights. His, his arrest was probably Jesus-like, worth talking about, worth possibly even emulating. Jesus was ready for his hour, and the question is, are you and I? How was Jesus ready? How did Jesus prepare himself for this moment? <clears throat> Here's a couple of things from your notes. First of all, he knew who he was. Matthew 16, 13, you don't need to turn there, but just listen. When Jesus, this is a time when Jesus and his disciples were there. It says, Jesus came to the region of uh, Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Just had these moments where he kind of pulled them, pulled them aside and asked these questions, fired it off. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he looks at him in the eye and he says, but who do you say that I am? And most of you in this room could quote the response of Peter who stepped forward, no surprise. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then catch this. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Was Jesus asking his disciples who he was because he was in an identity crisis? No. Jesus knew very well who he was. But this was a moment where he was going to peel back another layer of who he was. 
And he was kind of pointing out too, I think, there's going to be a lot of opinions about me. You're going to hear a lot of crazy things about who I am and what I'm doing. And then when he asked that question, and Simon Peter comes forward and says, you are the Christ. That's just a loaded term. There's so much there that we're not going to go into. But everyone in that circle knew what that meant. The promised one, the Messiah, the specific son of God who is to come and save God's people. That's who you are. And Jesus looks at him and says, there's something supernatural going on right now in this moment. You're not so brilliant, Peter, that you dreamt that one up. That's my heavenly father who whispered in your ear and revealed that to you so that you would know this. Jesus knew who he was. He was the son of God. He was here for that reason. Jesus didn't just say words. He had had a way, and John records this well, of saying, um, I am the bread of life and then feeding 5,000 people. He culminates it with, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he goes and dies and is resurrected. He has a way of saying things, and then events uh, come alongside and and give uh, credence to what he claims. Look at verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he, Jesus, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus basically is using this term. He does this in John chapter 8 a few different times. But there is no he in the Greek language there. This is the name of God from uh, from Exodus chapter 3. He's saying, I am. He's saying the name of God. He's actually saying the name that the Israelite people wouldn't even say. The reason they wouldn't say that is that their history bears out that this is a God that should be absolutely and utterly feared. Not just fear in the reverent sense, although they had that fear, but feared as in afraid, terrified, fall down dead fear. Because their history had borne out, this is a God who's holy and separate. And there's power in this name. And when Jesus says, I am, they fall back to the ground because this song we sing that says there's power in the name, this is it it borne out. I love that they, they repeat their, you know, their, their reply when he asked them a second time. They're probably just like a little bit timid. I don't know how that went down exactly, but they were probably bracing themselves this time when they, when they were asked a second time of who you're looking for. This idea that there's power in the name um, is, is, a, is a picture of Jesus saying who he is. He was making it very clear now. In past times leading up to this moment, he would be a little bit hidden. He would be a little bit veiled with things. Now he's saying boldly and unequivocally, I am God to these people. Not only did he know who he was, he knew why he was here. John 12, 27, I could just give you a ton of verses. There's so many verses just in the Gospel of John where he is saying, this is why I'm here, but this is one of the most poignant. John 12, 27, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Catch this. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. The whole 33 years leading up to this point is for this moment. This gauntlet that I'm walking into, I did just pray, God, is there any other way? This is going to be torture. But this is why I'm here. He had a very clear reason for why he was here. Finally, he knew what was going to happen. Time and again, and we have the benefit of looking back on things. But time and again, Jesus is predicting exactly what's going to happen. He says so pretty clearly in Matthew twenty eighteen. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, a favorite term for himself, especially recorded in Matthew, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. 
Over and over, Jesus is actually teaching his disciples and telling his disciples, this is what is going to happen. This moment in the garden is not catching him off guard or by surprise. Knowing who he was, knowing why he was here, and knowing what was going to happen. Let me just make a tiny observation here. That has to do with identity, purpose, and a person's future. About a year and a half ago, we went through a series called Ultimate Questions. The ultimate questions that people have to identify with and wrestle with at some point are these kinds of questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What happens to me when I die? Most every person around the world thinks of those kinds of things, those those ultimate questions. And here's what I would throw out to you. Jesus had those down. Here's a way to be ready when times of testing and trial come. Figure out those ultimate questions. Figure out the very big ones first. And all these other little questions that come along, they have a way of kind of taking care of themselves. Jesus put it this way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll be added to you. Get these big things down first. Who are you? Why are you here? What happens to your soul, to your being when you die? You begin to... Take time and invest and figure that one out. A lot of other things tend to, to pan out. Jesus' readiness for this moment was, uh, was preceded by a willingness. And that's kind of our second point here is that those who are willing to obey even in the face of peril. Peril meaning exposure to injury, loss, destruction, grave risk. I don't know how many of you have been in peril lately, but Jesus here obviously is in a moment of peril, right? There's a... We don't know exactly how many, but there's a large chunk of people who who are in earthly authority to come and do what they want to with Jesus. And they're looking for him by name. Here's some of the things Jesus was was willing with with, uh, regard to uh, this setting. First of all, he was willing to go to the place of his um, arrest. He was willing to, 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 um, to go to the place of his arrest. Jesus basically sovereignly lined up where he'd be arrested. It says that they knew this place well. He knew what was going to happen. Remember at the, at the Last Supper, we like to call it, he basically dismisses Judas to go do what he has to go do. And he basically, I mean, you know, I'm sure he didn't do this, but he's probably winking saying, I'll see you, see you in a little bit, you know, at the garden. He, he knows what's going on. He didn't go pick a secret place because he was fearful of it. He went and met this head on. Jesus was willing to walk to the place where it was going to all start to kind of unravel from an earthly perspective. Here's a second idea is he led his followers to that place. Jesus leads his disciples into peril. This isn't the first time, right? He, he, he gets on them with a boat and heads out into a sea that he knows is going to become life-threatening to them. So much so that seasoned fishermen are going to be white and panic-stricken for their very lives. Jesus is sleeping in the hole of the boat. He led them there. He will lead you and I to peril. He will lead you and I into very uncomfortable places. He will lead you and I into places where people are coming with lanterns and sticks and problem is about to, to happen. More on that in a little bit. Not only was he willing to go to the place of his rest, he was willing to be with his enemies. We already kind of looked at this, but he, he takes charge of the situation. John 10, 14, he said this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. In the coming weeks, we're going to dive into in great depth and detail some of these kinds of questions. Why was Jesus' death necessary? I hope you've wrestled with that. I hope you haven't just accepted that, yeah, it's this cross and all of that. You, you need to go there and go, why, God? Why did you have to kill your own son? I can't fathom how that's good. We're going to dive into that and we're going to, we're going to explore that. We're also going to explore what was accomplished on the cross. We're just going to look at that. What was it that was accomplished by Jesus dying on a cross? You're actually Christ-like when you say, isn't there any other way it could have happened? Wasn't that what Jesus prayed in this very garden moments before our setting? He said, God, there's any other way. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was willing to go forward with the plan. So we're going to look at the why and the what in a little bit. Today, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that Jesus' life being laid down, it was, a, it was a gift. It wasn't taken from him. It was a gift. It's really important in the songs that we sing to make sure that they have theological accuracy. Because what happens is sometimes we get singing a song that's got a catchy tune, and it actually has untruth in it. We find ourselves bebopping along, even as a church, singing a song that's not really true. And it's good to look at the words of worship songs. And there was, there's, there's, there's a song that had this idea that, that, that Jesus, you know, life was an accident. Or it was taken from him. Or it wasn't in his complete and utter control to lay it down. And I remember singing that song one time and having my conscience pricked to say, that's not how it went down. This wasn't, this wasn't an accident. This was a choice. This is a demonstration of love that he gave his life away. It's why we call it a sacrifice. He took on peril. He took on great injury and loss for the sake of someone else going free. So all I want you to see today is just that this was absolutely his doing. And him being in the garden, it starts with the arrest. He doesn't run. He doesn't go and try to hide. He doesn't evade. He goes willingly. Finally, he was willing to, to do God's will. Not mine, but yours be done. Those are, those are powerful words of that prayer. John doesn't re- record it for us, but the other Gospels do. Jesus just praying, crying out, and, and concluding with, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus preached this message, didn't he? You cannot serve two masters. What was he talking about? Money. I, somehow I looked right at Rich Henderson, our budget mentor. You cannot serve two masters. That's absolutely true. And not just with money, but any other God. You'll be ripped in half. It's not the way, it's not the way we were designed. We just sang this song, Made to Worship. You and I were, in fact, made to worship. We were, by design, hardwired to worship. And every single person you come across, look at them in the eye and realize, this is a worshiper I'm looking at. They might be worshiping self, job, pleasure, comfort, material things, travel, the Niners. I mean, it could be, it could be anything. But they are worshipers. They are designed that way to worship. And Jesus, who preached, you cannot serve two masters, in the moment of testing said this. Here's my request. Is there any other way? And then what did he do? He submitted himself to his master. He yielded to the will of the Father. 
That's what, he, that's what he tells us to do, to yield. Make our requests known, but yield. And ultimately, at the end of the day, here's what the end of the prayer is. It's not my will that matters. It's your will. And that's, what's, that's what we're going to go with. That's the plan. Here's a, here's a contrast. I just want to kind of show you a little picture of what the disciples were thinking. In Matthew 26, again, we don't have time to turn there, but Jesus warns this, his, this group of disciples, this group of, of younger men. He says this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what he tells his disciples as he's going to go on a little bit further, he says, you pray for yourselves. Remember in our three-week series on prayer through John chapter 17, there's this idea of praying for yourself. Jesus prayed for himself, not for a new car, not for new sandals, but he said he, he, he prays for himself in the sense that we ought to pray for ourselves. God, do a work in me. God, strengthen me so that I will always choose your will over my will. Grow in me in such a way that, that there's, there's no room for the other junk in my life because you've so filled me up. He tells his disciples, pray for yourself that you will not fall into temptation. He knows what's coming. He knows what's right around the corner. And so that's what he commands his disciples to do. What do they do? What do the disciples do? They sleep. Yeah, they fall asleep. Right? Let me just, let me just toss out to you. Here's, here's the result of sleepy disciples. Take just Peter. Peter, who's usually pretty rash with words. Take the transfiguration as an example. Now he's rash with, with his actions, right? He's the act first, think later guy, speak first, think maybe guy. Here's what he does. He whips out his sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, this high, high priest servant who's there. Um, I've just been around middle schoolers for last, last, uh, last week at, at Hume Lake and something we heard, Lucas, I heard this a ton of times is that it was an epic failure. Something's an epic failure. I looked at, at, at Malchus's actions here. I mean, Peter's actions against Malchus as an epic failure. Here's why. Tons of people are there. Jesus is there. Peter rashly whips out the sword and just, I mean, he's probably groggy still from his sleep. He's like, where's the action? You know, whips out his sword. And as most of you know, he wasn't aiming for the right ear, right? I mean, that's a good shot if you can, if you can pull that off. This isn't like a little fencing, you know, thing. He whips out this thing. He's probably aim, aiming for the guy's neck or head. And Malchus pulled one of these and he caught the guy in the ear. It's an epic failure because of this. What next, Peter? I mean, there's a ton of people around, right? If this is your plan, like you're lopping one guy's head off, and then what? Like, where where does it go from there? You know, only in the movies does two guys, you know, kill off about a hundred people or so. So it's an epic failure in that sense. Here's the here's the bigger epic failure, though. Not only was it a horribly conceived plan in the first place, the 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 bigger epic failure is this. What does Jesus do to Malchus? We don't get to see it in John. But he comes over and he restores the ear, miraculously heals Malchus, right? So what you realize is Peter's failure is that he was fighting against Jesus. He was going in the opposite direction of where Jesus was going in this moment. Jesus had a plan. He was following the Father's will. Peter comes along and what ends up happening is he's actually working and pulling against Jesus, Here's what a sleepy church, a sleepy family, a sleepy individual disciple has to be concerned about. When you wake up from your stupor and you start to just, it's Sunday morning or it's ministry time or something, you can do the same thing. You can whip out a sword and lop off a guy's ear. And it's totally against 
what Jesus in that moment has for you to be doing. You can jump up with your mouth and say, all right, we should build a a temple here. Let's do something here. This is a phenomenal moment. And then you just hear this voice. Shh. Stop talking, Peter. It's not what this moment's about right now. So as a church, it's imperative for us to not fall into temptation. It's imperative for us not to be sleeping when we should be praying. It's imperative for you as a family, for you as a couple, for you as an individual disciple to be in prayer and to be doing these things. Here's the kinds of things I think churches and people get in, involved in. They pick fights that Jesus don't, doesn't want you fighting. Ben talked two weeks ago about unity in the church. And man, we could have taken several weeks on that one. I felt myself, as I listened to it this last week, hungry for more of, okay, but how and where? Where do we go with that? What does that look like? Here's the... Here's the gist of it, though. I think some disciples, some churches get off on majoring on minors and fighting every last theological nuance battle that's out there to be fought. All the while, Jesus might be coming along afterwards, picking up ears and healing people that are being left in our wake as we go off wielding our sword of the Spirit, all in the name of Jesus. We're fighting battles he doesn't want. Here's the other extreme, though, that's equally as dangerous. What if you as an individual, as a family, what if we collectively as a church don't fight the battles that are to be fought? There are some majors that are worth fighting about, worth arguing about, worth taking a stand for. And what if we say in the name of unity, well, let's not minor on the majors or major on the minors. We don't want to fight. Can't we all just get along? I think you can veer off on any one of those two courses and be in huge trouble and be actually working against what God would have you do. Here's the other thing I think sometimes we do is that we seek an escape. We seek to escape or be delivered from the very suffering that's going to bring God the most glory. If you're like me, when you get even a head cold, you run to the Father and you want to be relieved of it. If he doesn't answer soon, you go pop some pills and you do it yourself. Take that and just begin to, to amplify it. And say, what if this trouble that you're in, what if this job bind that you're in, what if this relational thing that you're in, what if this physical ailment, and I do not say this lightly because I know our people, and I know some of you are struggling with deep hurts and wounds in this building this morning. But what if God wants to show off his glory and make you an absolute trophy of his grace and show off how much you treasure him? And that your hope is in an unseen kingdom and in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not in your health. Not in your family planning, not in your job, not in your plans. And what if time and again as you go through this, your family and your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends keep seeing you say, not my will, but God's be done in this. You keep bringing your request to God, just like Jesus did, but at the end of the day you just... Yield yourself to his will. What if that suffering is what God has for you? Jesus prays for deliverance from this and doesn't get it. And in the end, yields and goes with him. We're to speak and to live out of keeping in step with the Spirit and not speak and live out of the flesh. Because where that lands us is lopping off people's ears when Jesus doesn't want it done. Ephesians 5.8, I put this in your... Bulletin, because I don't want you to miss this 
Follow along with me. It says, for you were once darkness. Not you were once in darkness. You were once darkness. You embodied darkness. But now you are light. Complete changeover. Not now you have a little bit lighter. You are now light. You were darkness. Now you're light. That's what it means to be in Christ. Okay, That's where we're at. That's where we're starting. That's who we're talking to. Christians, disciples. Here we go. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You might want to star verse 15. This is our memory verse for the week as a congregation. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. On two different occasions in this short passage, we are being called, we are being challenged to find out what pleases the Lord and to understand what the Lord's will is. How does Jesus do that? He does it in prayer. How are we to do it? We're to do it in prayer. We're to keep in step with the Spirit. This begins with a willingness. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, being ready and willing only qualifies really for you to be a false messiah. Because without being qualified, without being able, you're left in this, in this area of being ready and willing. There were plenty of ready and willing kinds of false messiahs out there. I want to show you a picture. This is my brother. This is a picture I took of his golf swing. Now, my brother might be ready and willing to go to the British Open next week and, and win. And he could look you in the, in the eye and just say, I am ready and willing to do this. I've got my clubs, but I've played with my brother Mace before. And you know what? It's going to be a mess if he goes to the British Open next week. It'll just be a huge problem. Without the ability, right? Someone else comes up to you. This guy comes and says, I'm ready to win the British Open. Even if you don't follow golf, you know who this person is, right? John Elway. No, I'm just kidding. Tiger Woods, okay. So Tiger Woods says it. There's a whole different category. Without the ability, being ready and willing, it, just, it, just, it, 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 it can just be a real mess. Here's, how, here's what I'm talking about with our ability. When you're able and qualified to be God's instrument of grace, then you're able to, to, to walk as Jesus did. Verse 11 is a powerful, powerful statement. He says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This cup is the cup of suffering. This cup is the road that's going to lead to Calvary. He knows what's coming, and he's just, he's just it's a beautiful, almost poetic way of just saying, is this not what I've received? I'm going to drink it. I'm going to follow and do the Lord's will. What he's saying here is it's a preordained plan. Jesus was uniquely qualified or able to bear this cup. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 says this, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as the sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. But it was the Lord's good plan 
to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished in his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. This is a prophecy several hundred years before Jesus was even born. And if you ever go and study prophecy, not future end times prophecy, but the prophecies that surrounded the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ministry of Jesus Christ, it will blow your mind. People have said, well, yeah, he orchestrated his life to, to line up because he knew the prophecies. He didn't predict. You, you, you can't predict where you're born. can't predict the circumstances surrounding it. All these things line up. I've picked just one out of it that's most pertinent. It's called the, the suffering servant prophecy. And it just talks about Jesus and what went on in these days ahead. I love that John records this. And again, they said it twice. Who is it you're seeking? Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. This specific person is who we're talking about. So you can't get it confused with just any Jesus. This was Jesus of Nazareth who was with these disciples in this garden at this moment in time. This specific one. And it all has to be there. Judas has to be there. I love that John records for us that Judas was standing there with them. Clarifying, eyewitness account. He brings the little detail of lanterns and torches that were there. John was standing there witnessing this going on. The historical Jesus of Nazareth is who we're talking about. Turn to 1 John for a moment. Leave your finger in, in, in John 18 and just go back to 1 John. This is the same John writing a little bit later in life. And in 1 John chapter 1, you can just hear John's, not only his, his eyewitness authority that he's giving here, but his pleading to say this is the one. Already, very soon after Jesus' death, all kinds of things were spinning about how and what was really going on. Doesn't that sound like today? Here's what Jesus really meant. Jesus meant to be, he was one of the paths. He was one of the opportunities to be, to be able to know God. Already things were spinning. And so John writes this, makes it crystal clear. 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard. You get the idea yet that he's an actual eyewitness? He wants that crystal clear. So that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm getting at with this. Our ability comes from being connected to, as Jesus called himself a couple chapters earlier, the vine. Our ability, our ability to be qualified, our qualification comes in Christ. It's another way of saying that it's, it's Jesus 
is the, is the path or the entry, the gate, as he, as he used it, into heaven, into fellowship with God the Father. And then as Jesus lives in us, he begins to work through us. And that's where we become the instrument of grace, just like, like Jesus was. Let me pull back to the title. And in closing, I just want to point out a couple of things. Obedience and intimacy prepare us for when our hour comes. Some of you might be in a season of life right now. I don't know. Some of you might be in a season of life right now where you feel like this is the hour. This is the hour of testing right now. And I, I, want, I, I hope the, the message is clear. I'm not talking about little day-to-day trials kinds of things. I'm talking about thinking about You ever wonder, like, God, why did you prepare me the way that I am? We went around in the cabin at camp and just marveled that God wired Jonathan Adam exactly how Jonathan Adam is for a specific reason. And that Lucas and myself and Curran and Tim and Nick, God wired us just like that. And so often we look in the mirror, we look at ourselves, we gripe and complain, we wonder why we can't be more like that guy or this person. Our will's getting in the way. We're not seeking after God. Why did you make me this way? I want to know why I'm here. I want to know why you've created me for such a time as this. Obedience and intimacy prepare us for this. If you're sleeping, if you're sleeping through life, the message is wake up, sleeper. Quit sleeping through life. Otherwise, in the moment of hour, you'll wake up groggy and you'll say things and do things that are counter to God's will. The only way to be ready, willing, and able is to do what Jesus is doing. A long obedience in the same direction. Step after step after step after step after step. And when it leads to a place of peril, you check in like you always do. And then you take another step. And you keep on finding out what pleases the Lord. You seek and strive to understand what it is that the Lord's will is in this moment, in this decision. We have a very clear picture in our story this morning of what it, what it looks like to not do this. By the way, obedience and, um, and intimacy, not being there, is, I would say in some ways, the equivalent of hating God. The Bible doesn't leave wiggle room that some of us are likers of God, and we also love ourselves too. We're just a little more fond of ourselves. It actually says this. It says that we're, we're haters of God. We're, we're, we're born God's enemy. We're born against God. So that's what being darkness is all about. And if you don't have intimacy with God, really you have enmity. You have hate for God. And let me just talk about Judas for a moment. Jesus quotes this. It's an, it's an Old Testament passage. But he looks around at one point. And he says, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And every time I've thought about that and heard that until this week, I've always thought about that more in terms of our words and what we're saying. But think about Judas. Judas takes his lips, and what does he do with them? Yeah, he kisses Jesus, right? There's so many different ways Judas could have chosen to come and identify so it's crystal clear who this Jesus of Nazareth was. There's, there's, there's a whole toolbox he could have chosen to, to kind of give a greeting that would have been very, very clear who it was. 
You know what Judas does? He goes for the absolute most intimate one. It's this kiss of friendship. It's this kiss of, this is my master. This one, Judas, honors Jesus with his lips in an affectionate kiss of submission and honoring. But in his heart, what's he doing? He's devouring his enemy in that moment. As I thought about this, as I think about it now, there's a part of me that's scared to death about this. And it's a godly scared to death, I think. I would venture to guess, as I look around, and I I know many faces, if not most, in this room, that most of you would not do what we call here in America taking the Lord's name in vain. That's saying the name of Jesus Christ or God and, and, and using it as a swear word, using it lightly. You know what a great definition of vain is? It's empty. Just empty. Most of us wouldn't do that, right? But here's what I fear. And as I sit and worship and sing and prepare and am, and am enjoying the fellowship of what goes on on a Sunday... I hope there's a conviction that falls on us not to do the same thing in our worship words. That we would, with emptiness, sing words of adoration and commitment and surrender and honor while in our hearts we're devouring our enemy. That that we wouldn't, in, in empty vainness, raise our hands, give some public display of tears and saying, we love this Jesus that we're talking about. We're honoring him. Yay, Jesus, and we clap, but it's vain. And it's lips that are far from God, or lips that are close in appearance, but hearts that are far away. Words sung, hands raised, even faithful service. Can't we faithfully serve and have it, in essence, be a show? Have it be vain worship, vain following? You could vainly have given money today. You can vainly sign up to go to Mexico with us. With emptiness, we can put on a show and hate our our enemy in our hearts, have our hearts be far from him. Here's my challenge to us. Here's my thoughts for us as we turn to worship. I want to invite the band to come up. In a season of response, here's how we're going to end our service today. If there are those in this room who this week, this season of life, this year, this life have been guilty of vain, vain lips, empty words, empty worship, repent. The message of the Bible couldn't be more clear. Stop the charade. Repent. So instead of singing more judgment on ourselves... By going, well, we're going to sing now. Dave's going to stop talking. Good. And get out of this. Don't sing more judgment on yourself. Don't sing more far lips uh, and, and far hearts from God. Emptiness. It'd be the same as going out and cursing in the streets with the very one who died for us. We'd never choose to do that, but we can do it in a more sophisticated way. Repent if you're in a place of, of not being intimate. Secondly, I want this to be a season of prayer. We're told in scriptures to pray without ceasing. And I've wrestled with that. I go, what does that look like, God? How does it look to always be praying? Let me just point out from the last couple moments of Jesus' life. John 17, what was that? It was a prayer, right? 
The whole chapter is a, a recorded prayer for us. He then goes from that season in the upper room to a garden. What does he do in the garden? He prays. And he calls his disciples to pray. It's not like he stopped there, because I think the conversation went on, right? But what does he do on the cross? He cries out in anguish, and it's a prayer. This intimate, ongoing conversation with God is our absolute lifeline in these situations. It's not only designed, this prayer is not only designed to prepare us for the hour to come, it's also, it's also the design to sustain us through that hour. So don't just pray a whole bunch leading up to decision and then take the, 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 the gas off, so to speak. But pray without ceasing. In our service this morning, here's what I'd invite you to do. I'd invite you, if you need prayer, if you'd like someone to come alongside and pray with you, I want to invite you to come make your way to these front two rows or to this front row right here. And body of Christ, let's just be the body of Christ, shall we? There's someone who comes up here that needs someone to come be with them. I'll be available too. Kel will be available. We'll have official leaders do it. But let's just be the body of Christ. Let's come alongside one another and pray. As we sing worship songs, as we're being led, we're going to sing a song that talks about our mission and the fact that we're, we're not just called to sing songs and let it go at that. It's, a, it's an idea of action and of moving forward. Some of you in this room might just need prayer to say, I feel like I've been the one who's ready, set, but I'd never go. I'm always in the starting blocks. I need a prayer of release. I need a prayer to understand what God's will is. Grab some brothers and sisters alongside you. Just pray where you are. Maybe as a family you need to pull away this morning and in this room as worship of the saints is going on. You just need to pray together. Let me read a prayer. Let me have you just close your eyes. And uh, Alex, do you mind just playing a little something before we uh, get into this song? came across this prayer that I think can kind of be a, a launch pad maybe. Dear Lord, you are the first of the just. You lived the righteous life. It is because of you that your heavenly Father keeps this world in existence and shows such mercy to us sinners. Who am I, Lord, to expect your love, protection, and mercy? Who am I to deserve a place in your heart, in your house, in your reign? Who am I, Lord, to hope in your forgiveness your friendship, and your embrace. And still, this is what I am waiting for, expecting, even counting on. Not because of my own merits, but solely because of your immense mercy. You live for us the life that is pleasing to God. O Lord, you are the just one, the blessed one, the beloved one, the righteous one, the gracious one. I pray that your Father, the Father of all people, the one who created me and sustains me day in and day out, may recognize in me your marks and receive me because of you. Help me to follow you, to unite my life with yours, and to become a mirror of your love. Amen.